Hello, everyone. I hope that you have all been remaining safe, healthy, and joyful. And I'm so glad that you're here with me again today as we continue our study through John's Gospel. Before we get started, let me pray. Heavenly Father, you are mighty and you are holy, and we praise your name. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to study your word and to grow closer to you. Let your Holy Spirit move in our hearts and in our minds to focus us on, on what you have for us today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Our study this week uh, begins on the third day of the first week of Jesus' public ministry. If you remember, on day one of this week, John the Baptist was on the banks of the Jordan, and he received some visitors. A group of men had been sent from Jerusalem to question him about his activities. Well, John tells his questioners that, that he is only a voice crying in the wilderness and that there is someone coming behind him, someone of such import, such superior rank, that, that John is not even worthy to untie his sandals. And on day two, uh, which we covered last Sunday, we found out who that person was. Once again, John is on the banks of the Jordan River, and, and he sees Jesus walking toward him. Jesus calls out, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And he positively identifies Jesus as the person that he'd been referring to. And he, he even adds two more details to his description. Jesus, the Lamb of God, was also the Son of God and the person who would baptize in the Holy Spirit. Well, as we begin day three, John is standing probably not too far from where he had been standing last week. He's standing there with two of his disciples, and Jesus happens to walk by. And this is where we're going to pick up our story in our text for today, which is found in John chapter 1, verses 35 through 51. The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by, and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and, and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, Rabbi, where are you staying? And he said to them, Come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus, and Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. Well, the next day, Jesus decide, decides to go to Galilee, and he found Philip, and he said to him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter, and Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of, of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth. 
the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. And Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? And Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. And Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. And Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see that the heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Well, as we noted last week, the Lamb of God is a, is a term for the Christ that appears only in John's Gospel. This is the second and final time that we will, that we will hear the phrase, and, and it seems to have the desired effect, because immediately after hearing him speak, John's disciples begin to follow Jesus. And it should be noted that the term follow that's, that's being used here it's being used in the general sense, uh, to go after, and not in the sense of becoming a permanent disciple. Even though the same Greek, the same Greek word is used by the gospel writer in both cases. We can read elsewhere in scripture, and we will, that, that both of these men did in fact become permanent disciples at a later date. At this point though, they have just received their first exposure to Jesus. John's willingness to to watch his guys walk away with Jesus, that underscores the humility and, and his conviction as to the identity of Christ. If Jesus were everything that John claimed him to be, then it was perfectly proper that these two men should follow after him and not remain with John. Although the men would not have grasped the full significance of John calling him the Lamb of God, they would have understood that Jesus was the coming one of whom John had been speaking and would have been eager to discover more about him. In verse 38, we read the first words spoken by Jesus in this gospel. What are you seeking? This is a purely rhetorical question. Jesus, through the power of the Holy Spirit, knew exactly what they wanted. And he also knew that as followers of John the Baptist, they had been convicted of their sin, and, and they were seeking the righteousness and forgiveness that would come from the Messiah. By asking the question, what are you seeking, instead of whom are you seeking, Jesus challenges them to consider their motives. And Here's a great quote from, from William Hendrickson that I hope will shed a little more light uh, on that exchange. This first word spoken by Jesus in John's Gospel is a master question. It bids, it bids them to look searchingly at their innermost longings and desires. A hidden promise lies in the question, what are you seeking? Jesus has the highest treasure any man can seek, and he longs to direct our seeking toward that treasure in order that he may bestow it for our everlasting enrichment. Well, perhaps they were a, a bit intimidated by Jesus' presence. 
Because the two men don't reply directly to his question. Instead, they respond with a question of their own, uh, part of which John translates for the Gentile readers. Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Now, to our Western ears, asking someone where where they're staying, that, that comes across as perhaps a little presumptuous and forward. But that's not the case in that part of the world at that time. To just come right out and say something like, uh, we are disciples of John the Baptist, will you teach us? That would have been considered rude. That would have put Jesus on the spot by requiring a yes or a no response. So they ask this non-committal question with the hope of being offered more. In verse 39, their strategy is rewarded because Jesus tells them to come and see. So the two men follow Jesus, and they end up staying with him for the rest of the day. The scripture tells us that the time was about the 10th hour, which is 4 in the afternoon. This detail is important because it provides a clue as to the identity of one of these two men. In verse 40, John plainly states that that one of the men was Andrew, the brother of Simon Peter. And although John never mentions himself by name in the gospel, the fact that he recalled this event right down to the exact time has led most scholars to agree that it was John himself who accompanied Andrew on that day. The invitation to come and see, that was more than than just an invitation to sit and and talk for a while. At, At four in the afternoon, back in the days before electric lights, with darkness approaching, uh, Andrew and John would have been expected to, to look for an inn, somewhere to seek shelter for the night. Instead, they are graciously invited to spend the night with Jesus. And John doesn't provide us with any details about what they talked about that night, but we know that it had to be good because the next morning, the very first thing that Andrew does is to go and find his brother. He, he finds his brother Simon and he tells him that he and John have found the Messiah. So whatever they talked about that night, it was obviously enough to, to convince Andrew and John of Jesus' identity and provide the fuel for Andrew's excited testimony to his brother that we read in verse 41. See, not content with merely telling him about Jesus, Andrew brings his brother to meet him. And in verse 42, we are treated to a a most remarkable first meeting. Jesus looks at Andrew's brother and states, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas. The gospel writer then helpfully informs us that the Aramaic name Cephas is translated as Peter in Greek. Well, both Cephas and Peter mean rock in their respective languages, and this is significant. Throughout Israel's history, there was a tradition of God renaming his servants. Just think about uh, Abram becoming Abraham, Jacob becoming Israel, and Saul becoming Paul. 
When Jesus saw Simon for the very first time, he was not simply seeing him for who he was, Simon, son of John. But he was seeing him for who he would become. As predicted by Jesus himself when he told him in Matthew 16, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. Peter would prove to be one of the most important and influential members of the early church. There's a valuable lesson to be gleaned from Peter's example, and it is this. We never know, we never know what God is going to see in a person. Our job is is simply to make the introduction and provide him with the opportunity. On day five, which begins in verse 43, Jesus decides to head north into the region of Galilee. And we're not told exactly where along the journey that Jesus meets Philip, but he does, and he tells him to follow him. This stands apart from the calling of Andrew, Peter, and John in that there were no intermediaries between Jesus and Philip. Jesus initiates the contact, and and although it's not recorded, we can assume that Philip, like the others, had a positive response of faith to the Lord's request. In verse 44, uh, we're provided with the information that Philip was from Bethsaida, the hometown of Andrew and Peter. Bethsaida, uh, which means house of fishing or house of fishermen, was a fishing village located on the northeast shore of the Sea of Galilee, not too far from Capernaum. Philip's response to meeting Jesus is much the same as Andrew's. He runs off to look for his friend Nathaniel to share the good news with him. It's interesting to note that the name Nathaniel is only used in John's Gospel. In the three synoptic Gospels, Mark, uh, Matthew, and Luke, he is referred to by his family name, Bartholomew, which means son of Ptolemy. And I believe there's a logical explanation for this. Uh, would any of us, when introducing one friend to another, would, would we introduce them by their last name? Probably not. So, because John presumably met Nathaniel through Philip, the use of the more familiar first name makes perfect sense. Well, once he finds his friend Philip, he excitedly tells him in verse 45 that we have found him. We have found him of Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Notice that that Philip uses the pronoun we, which seems to imply that he has already identified himself as one of Jesus' followers. Knowing that his friend had an intense love of the Old Testament scriptures, Philip declares that he had found the one who fulfilled the prophecies of which Nathanael was undoubtedly familiar. Nathanael's less than enthusiastic response in, in verse 46 was probably not what Philip was expecting. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? He asks. A question that reveals not only his doubts that the Messiah would come from such an insignificant place, but also his personal feelings about the town. Nazareth was not a cultural hotspot by any stretch of the imagination. It's not mentioned in the Old Testament, the Talmud, the Midrash, or in any contemporary Gentile writings. On top of that, because Nathaniel was from Cana, 
which is about 10 miles north of Nazareth, there may have been some rivalry between the two towns that colored his remark. Well, Philip stays on point, and, and he doesn't let Nathaniel's sarcasm deter him from his mission, and he simply invites Nathaniel to come and see. To his credit, Nathaniel puts his prejudices aside, and he follows his friend back to meet Jesus. In verses 47 and 48, we find evidence that even before Philip found him, Jesus had already called Nathanael to himself. As Nathanael approaches, Jesus refers to him as an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. The word translated as indeed is the Greek word, altheos, which means genuinely, in truth, or actually. This was Jesus' way of acknowledging that Nathanael was not a Jew in appearance only that he was not a hypocrite. Rather, he was a man that was genuinely devoted to God and to the study of his holy word. Nathaniel's comment, blunt as it may have been, was not rooted solely in small-town rivalry. Rather, it reflected the opinion of someone who was genuinely surprised that the Messiah would come from a previously unknown location. Jesus' observation that there was no deceit in Nathanael, it further reinforces the fact that Nathanael was not pretending to be anything other than what he was, a God-fearing skeptic that was open-minded enough to accept the possibility that his opinion could be wrong. After hearing Jesus' greeting, Nathanael is, is taken aback and, and, and exclaims, how do you know me? Well, Jesus' reply is even more shocking. Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Well, at this point, Nathaniel's mind is, has got to be completely blown. Not only had Jesus described his character without even meeting him, now he's telling Nathaniel something that he could not possibly have known. Most likely, the, the fig tree was where Nathaniel sat and, and studied the scriptures. And Jesus is claiming that he had seen him there. Nathaniel, he would have been familiar with the passage from Psalm 139 that speaks of the supernatural awareness of God, where it reads, O oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know where I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. Perhaps it was this awareness that removed all doubt from his mind and caused him to make the declaration in verse 49. Overwhelmed by the, the demonstration of Jesus' omniscience, Nathaniel replies, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Nathaniel's exuberant outburst confirmed his belief that Jesus was the long-awaited Messiah, even though he didn't come right out and say it. If you remember from last week, we, we looked at Psalm 2, which, which read, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. The Messiah, the Lord's chosen one, 
would be called the king and the son of God. Nathanael knew this and, and was thus able to declare that Jesus was the Messiah without ever using the word. John's purpose, as we've discussed before, John's purpose in writing his gospel was so that people may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, who shares the same nature as God. Earlier, uh, John provided us with the testimony of, of John the Baptist, that, that Jesus is the Son of God. Well, now he adds the testimony of Nathaniel. The use of the definite article here, the, it indicates that the title is used to its fullest extent. That Jesus, as the one and only Son of God, is in absolute equality with God. Even though Nathaniel, along with many of Jesus' followers, would refer to him as the Son of God throughout his earthly ministry, the glorious truth behind that title, that wouldn't be revealed until Calvary's cross. And what about the Nathaniel's use of the, the term King of Israel? As a dedicated scholar of the, of the scriptures, he would have known about the Old Testament references to the Messiah as the King of Israel. For example, in Zephaniah 3, verse 15, the Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. And in Zechariah 9, verse 9, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. This particular designation would be confirmed by Nathaniel's contemporaries when Jesus made his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. John 12 records that the crowd shouts, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Although, like many of his fellow Israelites, Nathaniel may have been hoping for a warrior king in the style of David, his testimony reveals something very important about his heart. By addressing, the, by addressing Jesus as the king of Israel, he is acknowledging him as his personal king. At verse 50, in response to Nathaniel's confession, Jesus lets him know, in essence, that he ain't seen nothing yet. Jesus knew of, of the prophecies that would be fulfilled through his arrival, the miracles that would be performed as, as predicted in Isaiah 35, where it reads, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. The disciples at this point, they have no way of knowing that they are only two days away from witnessing the first of the 37 miracles that are recorded in the Gospels. A miracle would take place at a wedding ceremony in Nathaniel's hometown of Cana. And if we take John at his word, which I believe we should, there were countless others that, that weren't recorded. Though Jesus was undeniably pleased to hear of Nathaniel's belief, 
he is moved to, to let him and the rest of the guys know that what they had witnessed was, was only the beginning. Verse 51 continues with Jesus' reply and, and offers us the first example of a uniquely Johannine phrase, the doubling of the word truly, a, a feature that appears around 25 times in John's Gospel and nowhere else. The word being translated as truly is one that, that we're all very, very familiar with. It's the Hebrew word, amen, which, which had been a part of the Jewish liturgy for years. Amen means belief or faithfulness and, and truth. And that word was often added at the end of a prayer to express assurance that the prayer would be fulfilled. Here's an example from Psalm 41, where the last verse reads, Blessed be the Lord, the, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting, amen and amen. By using that, that double amen, John is letting us, the readers, know that Jesus is about to say something important. So we had better pay attention. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Up to this point, Jesus had been speaking directly to Nathanael. However, in, in this verse, the, the pronouns in the original Greek text, the pronouns shift from second person singular to second person plural. The word you should now be taken to mean you all, indicating that not only Nathaniel would witness the events that he was about to describe, but that they all would. You all will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Jesus was probably alluding to Jacob's dream from Genesis 28, where he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending upon it. The point of this statement is that Jesus is the link between heaven and earth. He is the revealer and the mediator of a new covenant between God and man. As he will later tell Nicodemus in chapter 3 of this gospel, no one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. The Son of Man, a term that occurs 13 times in John's Gospel, that was Jesus' favorite way to describe himself. It, it's associated with his suffering and death, his provision for salvation, and his authority to judge. In the future, According to the prophecy in Daniel 7, it is the Son of Man who will be presented before God, the Ancient of Days, and given everlasting authority over everything and everybody. The full significance of this title and all of the other titles given to Jesus in this section, that wasn't immediately apparent to Nathaniel and the other disciples. As the story unfolds, though, over the course of the gospel, the full meaning behind them will become clearer until the terrible reality of, of why Jesus had come to live among them, that he had come as a sacrifice, 
would be revealed. As we look back over our passage for today, the calling of the first disciples, there are two important ideas that I want to keep, that I want us to keep close to our hearts. The first is that Jesus is seeking us. As it is written in Luke 19, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. That is a mission that Jesus takes very seriously. I have heard this said so many times. Someone will talk about finding Jesus. Jesus is not the one that's lost. We are the ones who are lost and, and broken and sick. And, and, and he will not give up until he has brought all of his sheep back home where they belong. And this is nothing new, people. Ezekiel 34, verse 11 reads, For thus says the Lord, Behold, I, I myself, will search for my sheep and will seek them out. God had been looking for us for a long, long time. And he sent Jesus as a means to bring us home. It is Jesus who calls us, who sends the Holy Spirit to incline our hearts toward that which is beyond our understanding. I want to share a quote now from, from Pope John Paul II that, that speaks to this very notion. It is Jesus that you seek when you dream of happiness. He is waiting for you when nothing else you find satisfies you. He is the beauty to which you are so attracted. It is he who provokes you with the thirst for fullness that will not let you settle for compromise. It is he who urges you to shed the masks of a false life. It is he who reads in your heart your most genuine choices, the choices that others try to stifle. It is Jesus who stirs in you the desire to do something great with your lives, the will to follow an ideal, the refusal to allow yourselves to be ground down by mediocrity, the courage to commit yourselves humbly and patiently to improving yourselves and society, making the world more human and more fraternal. The last line of that quote, where the Pope speaks of improving society and and making it more human, that leads me into the second point that I want us to consider. Can you imagine, (laughs) even for a moment, how, how much different this world would be if everyone were trying to be like Jesus? doing only the things that that he would do and saying only the things that he would say, wouldn't that be awesome? I know that sounds unrealistic and it's like a pie-in-the-sky ideal, but we have to try. The change in our heart that came from believing in Jesus Christ, that was never intended for our personal enjoyment only. Once we have obediently answered the call of the Savior, we, just like Andrew and Nathaniel, are obligated to invite others to come and see. As we have seen from today's passage, Jesus already knows what's in the hearts of men. But in in his infinite grace, he has entrusted all of us with a role to play in bringing people to him. Earlier in the lesson, with the example of Peter, we learned that, that we can never 
know for certain what God is going to see in someone. And that's not our job. Our job, until glory, is to continue to invite people to come and see. To let the world know that someone very, very special wants to meet them. Let's pray. Good and gracious God, thank you for the gift of your Son. We pray for your Spirit to guide us as we invite the world to come and see. Bless our efforts as we bring the message of your truth to a sick and desperate people. Make us as bold as John and as eager as Andrew. Let our lives reflect the love and the light of Jesus in all that we say and do. In his precious name we pray. Amen. As always, may the Lord continue to bless you and to keep you and to be gracious unto each and and every one of you. I pray that he turns his face to make it shine upon you and grant you his peace. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Have a wonderful week. Stay safe. Stay healthy. Stay joyful. I love you all. Bye. Good morning, brothers and sisters. At the communion table this morning, I would like to invite you to take advantage that you can find rest in Jesus. Whatever trial or valley, fear or worry that you are facing today, the bread represents and the juice represents that God loved us so much that he gave his greatest gift to us and that he's willing to provide for all of our needs. I would like to read from you to you from Matthew chapter 11, beginning in verse 28. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Despite our burdens and trials, there is rest in Jesus because he loves you so much and he cares for you. Jesus gave himself as a sacrifice and a guarantee of a future hope that we can have through him. This morning we're going to share in some elements that represent uh, Jesus. We have bread here this morning that, that uh, represents his body that he sacrificed for us. Let's share this together. And we'll share the juice this morning with each other that represents his shed blood that takes away our sin guilt. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful that you surround us with your unfailing love. You are gracious and generous and kind. You provide for all of our needs and you so lovingly, faithfully meet us at our place of need. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for what you did, sacrificing yourself for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.